Hey y'all, today on We the Black People, we're going to talk about black military history after the Civil War. So black service during Reconstruction, both in the South and in the West, black service during the Spanish-American War and in the Philippines, all the way to World War I, and a little bit about World War II. And we're talking about this because, to me at least, it seems kind of weird that black people would fight for a country that treats them so badly, yet black soldiers definitely weren't just fighting for America. They were fighting for themselves and for their communities, which is the story you're going to hear today. My guest today is Professor Latrice Donaldson, a professor at Texas A&M and author of Duty Beyond the Battlefield, African-American Soldiers Fight for Racial Uplift, Citizenship, and Manhood from 1870 to 1920. Let's go. The thing about talking about Black history, or even just like military history from a Black perspective, is that like most American history, it changes the narrative. Because often the military for white soldiers at that time was a last resort. But immediately after the Civil War, a lot of Black men chose the military. Right after the Civil War, they didn't have a lot of opportunity. They could like go back to working on plantations in very similar conditions. So the military was a chance to like gain new experiences, escape the plantation, and even get education. Yes, exactly. The Black community always desired some sort of uh, military training, right? But directly after the Civil War, uh, you are absolutely correct. They don't have a lot of options. And they also provide an opportunity to not just support themselves, but support their community. One of the things that is very different about the Black experience in this country is that from the very beginning, because of slavery, we've always had to think of not just individually, but within the community mindset, right? That's something that we've brought over from our um, ancestors from the continent of Africa, in which community was always put forth first. So Black military service, especially after the Civil War, is going to open up doorways for not just only getting an education, getting a steady paycheck, but also exploration, i.e. wanting to get away from being so close to the areas where they were formerly enslaved. And because of the way um, Reconstruction kind of ends up panning out and because the former treasonous Confederates were able to get their property back, they are limited in land ownership. Four million people who are set free have no money, technically, right? And so what are you what are you going to do? So yeah, you have these situations where the military offer the black community an opportunity to support one another. Learning to read and write, learning not only to read and write, but they're also going to learn a skill. Working as a quartermaster, learning about accounting, learning about engineering because they are going to be especially when you the further west they go, they are going to end up laying telegraph wire for the, the railroad. So all these things are greatly important. They're going to work with the post office. All these things help open up opportunities in regards to federal employment and providing for the community. So Black military service was always something that opened a lot of doors for African Americans. And Black women would usually accompany them, right, and follow them. And so Black women also have a relationship with the military that goes with the Black men. So it's it's always been a communal communal relationship. You talk a lot about chaplains 
in the military because like a chaplain by definition is a religious figure, but black chaplains were way more than that. Yes. They had a much larger responsibility. Their responsibility was like, you know, we were talking about um, these are mostly formerly enslaved people who were illiterate. And so how can you read a map? Well, you have to learn how to read a map. You have to make maps. You have to, like the the one thing about the military is that they have immaculate records because you have to document everything, orders, et cetera. Well, if you're a sergeant, they have to write up reports. Well, they have to learn how to read to do this. And so Black chaplains ended up being the primary educators for Black soldiers in a way that was different from white chaplains because white chaplains were usually just assigned to a post or a fort. Black chaplains had to travel with Black regiments and they ended up creating education systems. So Alan Allensworth, he's the second Black chaplain and he is going to be very important in not only educating African-Americans, but actually helping to reorganize and help restructure the Army's education program. It's his model that the head of the Army's education department utilized because what he does is he trains other Black soldiers to be teachers so that he doesn't have to be the one that has to travel consistently. He creates a curriculum that is easier to implement. Black chaplains aren't just responsible for teaching people how to read and write. They're teaching them what their citizenship means beyond just the uniform. And it's one of the reasons why Black soldiers are usually always going to be the ones pushing back against open discrimination on the frontier from like local police officers because they are very much aware of the power of that uniform and what that power means and what they're not going to settle for. The Black chaplains, the first four were Henry Vincent Plummer with the 9th Cavalry, Alan Allensworth, George Prilo, and then Theophilus Gould Stewart aren't just responsible for the spiritual guidance. They're also there to educate about responsibilities as citizens and what it means to be a responsible citizen. Their responsibilities were always more than their white counterparts. And they always ended up being advocates for Black soldiers and the Black community they're serving. So when they get stationed like in Salt Lake City, Utah, Allensworth ends up setting up a local choir and him and his wife are going to teach Black kids to play the piano and teach them to sing. And these things add to this sense of community and always the sense of service, right? Uplift is a part of their ideology. They teach these soldiers to always remember that your service isn't your own. And it's one of these things that a lot of people don't really, it's hard to grasp if you're not Black. When you go out, your mom always says, you know, you don't just represent you, you represent me. Don't show your ass, you know, behave yourself because, you know, you're representing our entire family. And so Black soldiers are aware of this, right? That when they're out there, they're not just representing their individual self. They're representing the Black community and the Black chaplains are very important in helping with Black, the self-esteem, right? The psychology of racial oppression, the damage that it does is very real. And so Black chaplains 
are going to be crucial in helping to keep African-American men on the frontier from feeling the full effects of America's um, racism. I want to zone in on like citizenship. That's really important to the book and to the motivations of Black soldiers. It didn't take long after the Civil War or even into Reconstruction for Mm -hmm. an idea of like second class Black citizenship to be enforced. But the military was one of the few ways to exercise full citizenship for Black men. Exactly. A big draw. Yes. See, it's always kind of a slap in the face to a lot of whites, um, especially, especially after the Civil War, to see Black men in uniform. Because it is a full-on rejection of their ideology of Black inferiority especially in the in the south you have black soldiers stationed in the south in these military districts who are there to protect the black community to keep them from being attacked when the civil war was going on blacks were like look we have to fight because we don't want white people to be like well we fought this war to free you and you didn't do anything to take care of yourself and so black self defense also plays a role in the fact that no we fought We earned our right to have our citizenship. And demanding that, it adds to the support that they end up having to get to have the 14th Amendment pushed through, as well as getting the right to vote. Black military service helped validate the Black vote. It helped validate Black citizenship outside of, you know, to push back against that oppression. And so, you know, African-Americans are going to say that they are because they say it in the newspapers, right? They talk about it with doing the, say, for example, the Spanish-American War, the Black editors will say things like, we need to demonstrate that we're the true protectors of this country, et cetera. And so, yeah, now Black service is a full demonstration of citizenship. And it even adds to the validity of pushing back when they go to, say, the polls or run for office in different parts of the country where they can vote or hold some sort of clout, right, and become political operators. So a man like Roscoe Conklin Simmons, right? Uh, He was one of the most well-known Black orators of the early 20th century. He was a Republican fixer. He was Booker T. Washington's nephew. He went by the moniker of Colonel Roscoe Conklin Simmons. Now, I don't know what service he did, but he was was a colonel. Uh, But (laughs) I think he was in, in in a militia or something. But the point being that military title adds to his stature. Right. And respectability. And so, you know, military service is very crucial to citizenship and eventually leadership positions, especially in the, in the individual black communities. So we're just going to do a huge leap. We're going to jump ahead. Uh, I don't even know how to introduce this in a way that makes sense. So there was this boat called the Maine and it exploded. <laughs> <laughs> Right. The, uh, in going into the Spanish-American-Cuban-Filipino conflict, yes. 1898, the USS Maine gets sunk or blown yeah. up. So we're going to skip to a whole completely different generation of Black men. So this is a new generation who also want to do the same kinds of things, enact full citizenship, get education. 
Yeah, the opportunities are still limited in 1898, right? There isn't that big of a difference in regards to what African-American men can do for positions and economic stability, right? Let's be honest, they got sharecropping positions. Their labor is always going to be more exploitative and the income at least is equal in the military for black soldiers and white soldiers. So, and then you also have this other thing that is passing on the legacy of this warrior class, because when people talk about warrior class, they usually frame it within white Americans. Also, another big draw was, especially in places like Minnesota and on the Western frontier, where you're like, well, how do black people end up in these places? Well, they follow the military, right? You're a black person who is looking for a certain sense of security. And the safest place for you in some people's minds would be wherever black soldiers are stationed. That means there aren't black men around. And so on the frontier, you have these regimental bands that would do parades and whatnot. And they end up being these symbols that people looked up to that uh, were like, I want to be like those guys when I grow up. And then they enlist right? And then they do their service. So the Maine blew up in uh, Havana Harbor. There were 237 sailors on board and 22 of them were African-American, right? So the Navy also for a while was far more open to Black sailors, but then scientific racism became more prevalent and the definition of the ideal, the perfect sailor was a white boy from Nebraska. And so they tried to push black men out of the Navy. So anyway, when the main sunk, there were black sailors on board and that serves as a rallying cry, right? We all know now that the main blew up because of some sort of internal era that the Spanish didn't sink it. But because of the ongoing Cuban revolution happening, it was believed that the Spanish Navy sunk the ship. So there's a call for volunteers. And the belief at the time was that scientific racism rears its head again, that African-Americans were more inclined, better suited for tropical climate. They're going to be some of the first regiments to be shipped from the frontier to prepare for the invasion. And then they recruit what would we call immune regiments that are just solely focused on African-Americans. And it's these immune regiments that eventually will, once we defeat the Spanish, they'll get sent to the Philippines. And it's their reaction to the suppression of the Filipino insurrection where you get the voice of dissent from Black soldiers regarding their service, right? They had no problem helping the Cubans getting their independence. They had a problem with the suppression of the Filipino movement. They still did their duty, but they talked about it in the press. Uh, And one of the ways that they would push back against the racist treatment would be how they treated the Filipino civilian population. And this leads to this inherent distrust that whites have of Black soldiers being overly sympathetic to the Filipino civilians because they didn't treat them like crap and attempted to treat them as humanely as possible, which is why 15% of Black soldiers, when they were um, discharged, they remained in the Philippines. They started families, they held jobs, 
It was great economic opportunities. They married Filipino women. That war is interesting because of the level of anti-imperialist ideology that's advocated in the Black press, right? And the Black civilian home front population is against the Filipino war, but they support Black soldiers, with the exception of Henry McNeil Turner, who was a former chaplain. He really goes in on Black men serving and saying that you know they shouldn't serve and fight over there. But for the most part, the Black press is going to not support the war, but support the soldiers. And it all begins with the sinking of the Maine in February of 1898. So the Navy allowed a lot of Black soldiers. And when the war first began, they were like actively recruiting Black soldiers because it was like in a warm climate and they were like Black people, like it hot. Yeah. (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) But at the same time, domestically, you were talking about how like Black people would follow around the military because that was like the safest place for them. But white people were very anti the idea of Black people in the military. They didn't like the idea of organized Black people with weapons and training. So at the same time that the military was targeting black people to get them mm-hmm. into the military domestically white people were very opposed to it the clan came back there was a lot of fear right exactly it's interesting because like you said on the one hand a part of it is they need the soldiers the army needs black men to serve because they need the numbers and then on the other hand you have in particular in the white south where they are adamantly opposed to the idea of black men even being stationed near them. And in fact, you know, you have some situations, say like in Salt Lake City, right, in 1897, when they learned, the white population learned that a regiment of the 24th was coming to Fort Douglas, they were like, no, we don't want them. But after a year, they published an editorial apologizing. And they were just like, actually, no, no, they're much better behaved than the white soldiers. We want them. Send them other people away because of the fact they do things in the community there in Salt Lake City, right? But, you know, you have situations where when they go to these places, there is this backlash at the presence of armed Black men. Also, the backlash of the caravan that follows these Black soldiers, the caravan of Black women, washerwomen, prostitutes, their families, etc. The Klan comes back, but like the Klan doesn't really resurge to the extent of it being a real huge problem nationwide until like the 1920s. These racist groups are going to try to target Black soldiers, which is another reason why they are only stationed in like they're stationed along the border. And they're stationed mostly in the West. They aren't allowed to be stationed in the South after Reconstruction, with the exception of Texas, until after the Spanish-American War. But, you know, their presence is a threat to white masculinity, right? Because this is also in a period of time where white manhood is being defined as being the antithesis to Black masculinity and Black male identity. And Black men do not define themselves that way right? White people, white men in particular are obsessed with black men. They're obsessed with blackness and what they're doing, etc. And black men aren't that concerned with white men. They're more concerned with protecting their community, 
providing for their families? How can they be men to provide for them? And it is this thing where white men are looking for the best ways to be considered the most manly of men. And, you know, we're not like black men who were savages, et cetera, and, and rapists and all this nonsense. The thing with the Navy is that just like the army, nobody wanted to serve in the Navy, right? You're on a ship for a long time, you're away. And so early on, the Navy was far more egalitarian in allowing black sailors to serve. So black sailors were far more present than in um, the army. Now, what ends up happening is that once they start letting in, say, for example, black midshipmen at the Naval Academy, the Navy takes pride in the fact that they don't graduate a black midshipman until the 1940s. Even to this day, you know, African-Americans in the Navy, especially in positions of authority, are few and far between. And the Army has always had that reputation of being a little bit more mobile for um, Blacks than the Navy. So the Navy is interesting because the Navy is viewed at this time as sea power is viewed as the key component to imperialism, to colonialism, and relegating Black uh, sailors to being cooks and stewards instead of actively being gunners, et cetera, on the ships is helping to prop up the idea of Black inferiority and white supremacy. To keep going, that the army needed Black people just like numerically. By the time World War I rolls around... America kind of just jumps into World War One without all that we needed to like do that war properly. So there was another <laughs> big push for right. black people to, to get black people into the army, but specifically as laborers and not like fighters. Well, no, they it wasn't that they wanted them just as laborers. What ends up happening is that the racist leadership pushed them into positions of labor and African-Americans demand, no, we need combat regiments. We demand combat training. We demand black officers. And they have to listen to that because they're like, if we want blacks to support this war, then we have to give them something. So in thinking about the war, the French didn't care. The French and the British were losing so many men they were like, we don't care what color. If you don't send us some bodies now. And so, you know, America didn't know what the war was really like. Yeah, they read reports, but they had no real idea about what the war was really like. They're going to commit to racism to the point where it becomes an issue with their allies, with the French in particular, that American racism, right? Because initially when the war started, they were like, we're not going to enlist any black people. Wilson, they won an all-volunteer in World War One. So the black regulars don't fight. Only the black NCOs who go to the officer training school at Fort Des Moines end up serving in Europe. But Wilson gets huge pushback. There's a, a lot of outcry from whites. They're like, wait a minute. Now, we don't want to be the only ones over there. So it's, it's this thing where white racism 
on the one hand is like, oh, you know, we, you know, suppress black people, don't give them weapons and all this kind of stuff. But then again, we don't want only white people serving and dying over there. So yeah, they regulate them to labor units or pioneer regiments is what they're called. Now, the important thing about pioneer regiments is that they're actually very crucial to the war effort in helping to maintain the supply chain and helping to maintain the flow of weapons and materials to the war front. And so transportation and supply uh, is a huge factor to why the U.S. and the Allies were actually successful. But because of how they treat those pioneer regiments, right, they don't issue them regular uniforms, they issue them like coveralls, you know, and they treat them as if they're like white overseers. And so it's like they try to diminish a role that they know is important because it's what African-Americans are doing. But there are white pioneer regiments. The British and the French have to have these same things as well. They have the same people doing the same thing. In fact, those soldiers want though, they're like, if I'm away from the front, line me up. That's okay. I'll go uh, load up some ships and unload the ships and that's fine. But that racism is so pervasive and it's the illogical nature of racism served as a detriment financially to the U.S. military because maintaining segregated quarters, maintaining this segregated society and system within the military is going to cause a problem financially for the U.S. Trying to um, minimalize their service, even though they are still soldiers in the American army. And I think that this is one of the reasons why the Black community is going to be so disenchanted by World War II, so disgusted and not wanting to serve, right? So when the call for recruits and volunteers begin, African-Americans are not rushing to join. Kind of want to step back and talk about the like officer training school in Iowa. That's super interesting. Yes, it's huge because when you talk about the long civil rights movement, Black progress in the army and the military is very seen because of the advocacy by civil rights activists for Blacks to be officers. So during the Spanish-American War, there was the no officers, no fight campaign where they have to give in and allow Black officers to command Black soldiers, right? Same thing with Black soldiers getting admitted to West Point, right? Because you have to have a congressional nomination to be admitted as a cadet. And so having those Blacks who get to do that. Same thing with the chaplains, right? Black chaplains have to be nominated by the president to be chaplains. Yes, it's a presidential appointment. So getting the support from... (laughs) This is a face you made. You were just like, wait, what? (laughs) Getting the support of the president to do that, right? So during World War One, you know, you have racist Woodrow Wilson. He's trying to keep blacks out the army in general. But you have that campaign, the NAACP and other black advocacy groups are going to campaign passionately for a black officer training school. So with each war, there's advancement, right? So during the Spanish-American War, you have the no officers, no fight campaign. During World War I, they're like, no, we don't just want a few officers. We want an entire training school where Blacks can be served in mass so that you can have an entire general staff of just Black officers. And so they do that. 
And so the black officer school at Des Moines um, becomes this rallying call, right? You know, they're going to recruit from historically black colleges and universities. They're going to recruit black college students. They're going to recruit for ROTC and they're going to recruit from the black regular regiment, those non-commissioned officers. They graduate the first class and then they go and they serve. They get split up between the 92nd and 93rd divisions, but then they get a racist and inept commander. And that causes huge problems though. But see, it's kind of like they got the right ones that time because those black veterans become organized and they are going to really push back against the treatment, especially after the war and the racist claims that are made by these white commanders after the war, refuting and repudiating what they're saying. Um, and the French back them up. Like I said, it's it's this thing where World War I really changes the game in how African-Americans viewed military service for a while because of the treatment they had because of the rhetoric, right? The rhetoric of Wilson, we're making the world safe for democracy. We're making the world safe for democracy. And, you know, A. Philip Randolph was like, you can't even make Georgia safe for, for Black people. How are you going to make the world safe for democracy? <laughs> and like that becomes like a, like, because, you know, there's a lot of anti-war sentiment in the Black community during World War One, And so, you have two sides of this. They're like, well, you want us to support it, but you can't make America safe. So, you know, there's all those things that are going to cause a problem. Your book talks a lot about how Black men enlisted with the intention of, like, gaining personally, but also, like, uplifting their communities. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of what they did, especially yes. coming back from World War One. They mm-hmm. took what they learned and what they experienced and put that into the civil rights movement and yes. into like m- acting for social justice. The advocacy for blacks in the military was an active part of the civil rights movement. So like, for example, the Houston rebellion that happened in 1917, where men of the 24th infantry essentially go to war with the Houston police. It's going to end up being the largest court martial in American history. A hundred plus get found guilty or whatever get discharged, several go to jail, 13 get hung. The NAACP and the African-American community advocate and campaign well into the 1920s to get all of those who were still in prison in Leavenworth released. The NAACP actually holds their convention in Kansas for the purpose of having a march and to lead a protest outside of Leavenworth to get those soldiers released. And the fact that they are successful, they do get released. The white warden, you know, comes out and joins the protest and it, the optics of it, right? The NAACP was very aware of the optics of what they were doing, holding this prayer and all. So even the campaign for Charles Young, right? Charles Young gets discharged. The black community, the black press go in on the army for doing that. Because he was in line to be promoted to be a brigadier general. And they just couldn't do it. When I tell you Charles Young was beloved by the Black community, he was loved. And they demanded and wrote, showed up to the White House, 
demanded Wilson and Newton Baker. They didn't leave them alone. And then Charles Young helped, right, in his performance of his protest by demonstrating his health by riding 498 miles from Ohio to Washington, D.C. to present himself in uniform, right, with Emmett Scott, who's a special assistant to, to the Secretary of War, saying, I'm showing up for duty, right? And, they, you know, and the, the Black press is, is following him. And they're like, ride, Charlie, ride. And eventually he does get reinstated. But then instead of him serving and commanding Black troops, because the war also ends, right? Right when he gets reinstated. They send him to Africa for intelligence work. And he knew that, because he gives this speech where it's very much like a reflection of the fact that he knows that he probably won't come back. Like, this is his last mission. You know, he dies in Nigeria. And he's giving full military honors buried in Nigeria, buried there. But the Black community demands and campaigns for over a year to bring him home. And Du Bois, at his eulogy in New York, that was one of his best friends. And Du Bois gives this very angry eulogy in New York. But he has two... So his body arrives in New York City. And then there's this huge procession. Almost 100,000 people attend. It becomes, it's a national holiday in the Black community. Charles Young Day was a thing up until the 1960s in the Black community. That's how important he was because they knew, because he let it be known that his service was for the race. What he did was for the Black community. And his legacy is going to be seen, you know, like I said, well into the 1960s, And then Charles Young Day kind of fades away because of the anti-Vietnam movement. But Charles Young, his funeral at the uh, at Arlington, because like I said, his body arrives in in New York City. There's a huge processional, and then he is transported to Washington D.C., where he's buried at Arlington National Cemetery. His funeral becomes the largest in Arlington National Cemetery history, even larger than the unknown soldier that was buried during World War One. Black people showed up for Young because they admired and appreciated his service, right? And so when we reflect on Black military service and how it interacts with civil rights advocacy, the civil rights advocates always advocated for and prioritized Black military service and how Black soldiers are being treated. You got regular oversight. This is Black civilian oversight of how Blacks are being treated in the military. And they regularly put it in the press. A. Philip Randolph, who, like I said, during World War I was like, wait, why are they trying to serve if they can't be safe in Georgia? During World War II, he's going to be leading the committee to ensure that Blacks get to serve and labor desegregating the Department of Defense, as well as ensuring that there are Black officers and pilots in the military. They're going to push that it always remains a part of that agenda. It's how the military gets desegregated. It's one of those successes that people disassociate from the civil Because I'm like, the military listens eventually. When we pay attention, things changed. Things happened. In the 60s, because of the advocacy of the 40s and the 50s, you had more Black generals than I'd ever seen. It's fascinating that once we take our eyes off the military, what happens with Blacks in the military? 
they get regulated to one of the reasons why uh, you don't have high ranking black um, generals in the army, for example, was because they got regulated to transportation units. And in order to get promoted to generals and et cetera, you have to have some sort of active combat duty. Well, if you're in charge of transport, that's not active combat duty, right? So we're not paying attention and you see how they find ways to try to regulate us. I think a part of the reason why for a a long time, there was this like decline in black generals and all this type of things. Now that's different because, you know, the secretary of defense is doing an amazing thing that people are not paying attention to. But if you actually look at who's running things right now, it's a lot more black officers, black soldiers in command. For example, the commander of the Pacific fleet is black. The head of the air force is black. You have the promotion of more black women as admirals. The current secretary of defense did not allow the white Republicans to push out quote unquote critical race theory from the curriculum at the academies. You know, he sent that Marine general to testify before Congress. And he was like, no, we need these. The army, the military needs what they would call diversity, equity, inclusion training, because they're like, it's absolutely 100% necessary. And they couldn't push it out of their curriculum. And so, you know, I think if, you know, more people understood the power of Black representation in the military, I think there would be a change in attitude. Because, I mean, let's be honest, the numbers have never gone down. We've always served. It's a opportunity. Those opportunities are still there. And African-Americans take advantage of it. I think it's important to really understand and appreciate the, the success of Black advocacy for Black soldiers. Yeah, it is wildly important. Black soldiers went into the military for Black people so that Black people had their backs. Yes. Thank you so much. No, I'm, thank you. With me. I thank you. Like I said, I this was great. I love engaging in talking about this research because it is important. It's necessary for as many people to understand that Black self-defense is important to protecting the Black community. And the group that always stood up, right? Even with the Black Panthers, right? Bobby Seale was a veteran. Like they actively recruited Black veterans to do this. Black soldiers protect the Black community. And there are a lot more things that we could talk about in regards to Black self-defense that doesn't get discussed in textbooks. There's always so much more to discuss, which is why I keep making this show. And if you like We the Black People, definitely keep telling people you know to listen. And follow me on social media, at We the Black People Pod on Instagram and Facebook. All power to all people, y'all.